You're listening to Inspired Edinburgh, a weekly interview show that brings you raw and powerful conversations with fascinating people from all walks of life. Our mission is to inspire and encourage you to reflect on your identity, beliefs, purpose and worldview. If you enjoy this, please subscribe for future episodes and feel free to contact us via any of our social media channels. Thank you in advance for taking the time to listen to the show and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Tad Hargrave. Tad is a speaker, author, coach and founder of Marketing for Hippies. For almost a decade you have been touring your marketing workshops around Canada and beyond, bringing refreshing and unorthodox ideas to conscious entrepreneurs and green businesses to help them grow without selling their souls. (laughs) In January 2014 you launched NichingSpiral.com, a website dedicated to help conscious entrepreneurs figure out the difficult yet vital question, what is my niche? You're also the co-founder of The Local Good, a hub that helps people of Edmonton live a more local and green lifestyle and your work has featured in magazines, journals, newspapers, and nationally on the radio. Tad, it's absolutely brilliant to have you here. Good Welcome to, to the here. show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm extremely grateful to have got this time with you. Uh, it was a kind of last minute thing. And uh, thank you to, to Tabby Jane for, for hooking us up. Yeah. So, I mean, if we can start, you know, going back to the very beginning, sure. uh, you know, a bit about, I suppose, your, your early life growing up and, and kind of what that experience was like for you the whole thing (laughs) um well i grew up in edmonton alberta uh alberta is sort of the texas of canada it's a beef and oil province and um uh calgary's like houston edmonton's like austin texas where this cool government arts town and um it's a beautiful town that's got the most green space of any city in north america a lot of parks uh, second largest fringe festival outside of Edinburgh is here. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so I grew up there. I went to a Waldorf sort of alternative hippie school <laughs> and then went to an arts high school and been involved in the arts ever since with uh, doing improv comedy and various artistic endeavors in Edmonton. So Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the hippie thing. Um, yeah, are your parents hippies? Um, I don't know if I would say... No, not fully hippies. I use that term pretty broadly. Uh-huh. And when I say hippies, I'm sort of using it in the colloquial. Uh, people were into alternative things, you know, local organic food, uh, alternative medicine, this type of thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because, I mean, obviously looking at a lot of your descriptions are around people like conscious entrepreneurs. I mean, mm. what, what does that kind of mean to you, conscious entrepreneur? I don't know how much it means, honestly, but it's um, <laughs> just because, you know, a lot of these things end up becoming buzz terms. A lot of these terms get co-opted, and so then who knows how much they mean anymore. But I suppose I'm referring to people who are trying to do something good in the world through their business, that their business is primarily a way of doing good. They're not interested in becoming billionaires. Uh, they just want to sustain themselves while sustaining the world. So... In my case, it tends to be a lot of holistic practitioners, life coaches, permaculture people, this type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I can relate a lot to, to what you're saying there. 
It's good stuff. So your career path, I mean, I understand that you kind of I've went from <laughs> hippie marketer yeah. back to hippie. I mean, if you can give me a kind of overview oh. as to the types of work that you've done and, yeah, perhaps the way in which that's kind of shaped how you are. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up in this sort of, I mean, Waldorf is a pretty hippie school, I would say. And <laughs> and uh, I went to that and then I ended up working for a franchise of a personal growth company in Edmonton. And that's where I learned most of my initial stuff around sales and marketing. And it was just terrible, most of it. It, 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 Very high pressure, you know, very... um, Well, I I should differentiate. I would say a lot of the sales stuff I learned was very high pressure. Some of the marketing stuff I still teach in my workshops today. But I got introduced to a lot of different schools of thought. And I noticed I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, with the kinds of ways that I was being with people. When I was 18, I drank the Kool-Aid pretty hard. I don't know if it's the way I did those um, tools was the way that they were intended to be done. But I just was left with this feeling of um, it, the whole thing felt gross to me. The whole thing felt, uh, especially around the sales, felt very pushy and not respecting people. But it just seemed like that was all there was. That's what the book said to do. That's what the audio tape said to do. So I guess you just have to do it. And and um, you try to be as nice as you can while you're doing it, but you're still trying to just fundamentally get them to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yes, and so it took me, you know, a decade to really properly unpack what I'd been through and and how I see it differently now. So the back to hippie was, you know, after that I, I was involved in doing a lot of youth environmental social justice summer camps, this type of work around the world, and learning a lot about issues and I think I've just been like well capitalism is great you know and just misunderstood well there's some problems to just like God, capitalism has got to go but still had this uh, interest in and fascination in, and maybe some skillfulness in marketing and so I had a lot of friends who were you know, some kind of green alternative business and I wanted to help them and marketing was a place they were really struggling so like the business came out of that got you yeah. okay how would you describe your stance, um, I suppose, kind of politically, in, oh, in terms of, uh, you know, your, your views around capitalism? I know that I yeah. sort of sense they're quite strong. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, my views on politics, which, <laughs> well, you know, you got to look at the etymology of the word poly, that's many, and then science, and then ticks, blood-sucking parasites, um, you know. <laughs> So, but I mean, I would say um, if there's any sort of a a worldview, let's say, that I feel drawn to, it would be Mm -hmm. more of a traditional indigenous uh, earth-based worldview. So I don't know if I identify particularly left or right or uh, socialist, capitalist, capitalist. I feel like, you know, capitalism, you've got this elite uh, group owning the machine and socialism, the state owns the machine. uh, And I'm questioning the machine itself and the existence of it. And uh, yeah, so I guess that's, that's where I'm at in terms of capitalism. It's, it's, um, I mean, and, and I do understand the irony. I'm teaching marketing, which is explicitly this capitalist endeavor and I'm so critical of capitalism and, and I don't think it's been uh, anything really but trouble for the world. And that's just sort of where we're at is this, um, we're tr- 
for so many of us, we're trying to undo or uh, redeem something in the world. We're trying to make some positive changes, and we are still living in the system we're in. Mm -hmm. There's a certain need to pay rent, to get food, and you don't need money to do those things, but it does make it easier. So for a lot of people I know, they share a lot of my concerns, they're critical in similar ways, and yet they're still in this system. And so I, I just feel like it speaks to the level of challenge that we're facing is that we are simultaneously having to um, deconstruct one system, try to build some other systems, and sustain ourselves in the meantime. And that's just, it's uh, overwhelming on the best of days, I think, for most of us. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it looks as though marketing for hippies, as based on a lot of your teachings, it was born out of the fact that hippies have, uh, I'm going to use the word uh, unusual, relationship with money, or perhaps some sort of limiting beliefs or barriers around being able to actually... Uh, yeah, I suppose earn money. I mean, hmm. what are some of the things that you therefore teach in your in your practices? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if I understand it as limiting beliefs. Okay. I mean, maybe that's there too, but fundamentally, it's, I mean, what do you say to somebody who starts to get it? Who starts to understand how uh, deeply rigged the financial system is? And is deeply uh, spiritually, politically attuned to and critical of what's happening. You know, I mean, the Federal Reserve, interest charged on money, the whole debt base. I mean, you know, we can go down that rabbit hole. But it's uh, when you start to see it, when you start to see the, the concentration of money into fewer and fewer hands, you see that the way money has become this abstraction of relationships and um how do you have a healthy relationship to it? How do you, I mean, it's, so when people come to me troubled about money, I just want to kiss their feet, you know, like, thanks for being willing to question it. Thanks for, thank you for having issues with it and taking issue with it. And of course it's, but this is difficult because all those things are true. And yet, how do we sustain ourselves? And so, yeah, I don't know limiting beliefs, but, um, It's just the the mystery of our times, or the the yeah. How, how do you sustain yourself while you're contending with the very system that's sustaining you? Mm-hmm. You are biting the hand that's feeding you yeah. because you don't like the food, but there's not a lot of other hands offering food out. You know, and and I imagine everyone comes up with a different way. I was just in uh, Amsterdam, just outside of it. There's this place called Adam, and they're a squat. I think one of the only, or they're certainly the biggest squat remaining, but they just, it was basically a shipping company that had abandoned their building and they showed up and just took it over. And so they just took over the land and they're squatting on it. That's a legitimate approach. And that's just as legitimate as having a business and building an empire, you know, of your information products, more legitimate in my mind. And, uh, so there's, there are a lot of approaches to it, and certainly, you know, the, the work that I do helping people in their marketing is not the only approach. Uh, we need people growing food. We need people, um, you know, setting up co-ops and nonprofits and volunteering, all of that, you know, more of it. So, yeah, it's, I mean, when people, I, I get the the wondering about the the 
this is a limiting belief. And I hear this a lot where people will come and say, well, I just, you know, maybe it's, I don't think I'm worth it. Mm. And part of the challenge I think is it's not that we don't think we're worth it. It's that money and our self-worth have been so tied together so that we even speak in those terms, charge what you deserve, charge what you're worth mm. as if those two things have anything to do with each other. So, you know, it can save you a lot of years of therapy if you'll just uncouple those two. Because then pricing takes on a different hue to it. Then, then pricing is, okay, what are the facts of my reality? Well, I've got kids or, uh, you know, my, my rent is really expensive or I've got a lot of debt or, or health care expenses or all these things. And here's how much I want to work. And so, you know, you start to figure out just based on the facts how much you want to charge and what feels right for you. And nowhere in that conversation is, what are you worth? Because of the scorpion's tail of that, it seems so compelling. You know, it seems like such a self-esteem boosting thing. Like, don't you think you're worth it? No, you should charge more because you're worth it. Because you deserve it. And you, well, you feel a little buoyed by that. And you, you're right, I'm worth it. And God bless the person who told me that. Until you're sitting in a workshop and then the pitch comes. $10,000 coaching program. Don't you think you're worth it? Don't you deserve this? Don't you believe in yourself this, you know, the whole racket and then you're caught because you think, oh God, well, I I just said earlier, I believed in myself and I think I'm worth it. So if I don't do this now, I'm not worth it. And the whole thing is just a, it's a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of personal development Ponzi scheme. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How would you describe your own relationship with money then? Um. Lazy, careless. Um, I don't know. <laughs> There's a reason I don't run accounting for hippies. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh, that's a great answer. <laughs> so, in terms of uh, how hippies can market themselves better, I mean, and, and, and I suspect this probably applies to yeah. anyone at any level. It just happens to be your your niche. I mean, what are the ways that people can mark market themselves better? Well. I mean, I think first of it, first of all, it gets to this question of how are we even imagining marketing and what the the purpose of marketing is? Mm. Um, it, because if we look at the purpose of marketing as fundamentally about um, converting people, you know, which is worth noticing how that word has been used in other arenas in history. But mm. uh, if we look at it as, as conversion fundamentally, and if we look at it as trying to get people to say yes then you just get one answer to this question of what is marketing and what's effective. But if we look at marketing as fundamentally about getting people's attention, helping to establish is it a fit or not for us to work with them, and then lowering the risk of them taking the first step, you get a whole other set of answers. So that's the first thing that has to be contended with is this, um, because this is explicitly in most of the marketing and sales stuff I've come across was the getting people to say yes. How do you know you've succeeded? People say yes, they bought if they didn't buy, you failed. And that puts a lot of pressure on the, on the whole arrangement. So if we can let go of that agenda, that we're not trying to get the sale, we're just trying to see if things are a fit, then marketing becomes about, um, or better to say, marketing asks a lot of clarity of us, of what is it that we do, what don't we do, how do we do it, how don't we do it, who is it for, who is it not for. It asks us to really clarify that before we even engage in a conversation and not to enter the conversation already convinced that it's a fit. Because this is what I've seen so often is people, I mean, and literally are explicitly told you walk in already sold. 
you know, on the value of your product and sold that it can help them. And which, um, it's just a terrible way to enter any interaction with anyone else already knowing where it's supposed to go. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of how then, so much of it is then you start to set up your marketing fundamentally as a filtering mechanism. You know, Peter Drucker had the line, he said, the purpose of marketing is to make selling redundant. I mean, you don't need to do the selling anymore because people just show up already ready to buy. Mm. So that's the fundamental thing. You <clears throat> you structure it into the business. You structure it into the marketing so that nobody shows up who's not a fit. By the time they get to you, by the time they're talking to you, it's already ideally established. And then how do you do it? I mean, primarily relationships and relationship building. But this gets down to really understanding your niche and who's it a fit for, who's it not a fit for, and the role that you want to play, because then you can start to say, okay, well, who's already connected to these people or uh, the kind of people who are interested in what I do, you know, what else would they be interested in and starting to build these relationships. So, you know, the, you know, the silly, but best example I know, you know, is, is a the little girl who sells the Girl Scout cookies and she sets up her stand of Girl Scout cookies right outside of the, uh, the, the head shop that sells all the bongs and the paraphernalia for smoking weed and sells out immediately, you know. <laughs> um, she's like, where do hungry people who want snacks hang out? Great, boom. You know, she sets it up and immediately. Uh, it's So you start to think in this way instead of trying to get attention. It's like, well, where are people already putting their attention? And let me just go there. I can't remember who said it, but somebody was asking, you know, if you if you had a hamburger stand, you could only have one competitive advantage. What would you want it to be? Oh, the best sauce, or it'd be organic, or it'd be raw, or it'd be vegan, it'd be, you know, all these things. And the fellow teaching us that, you know, those are all fine answers, but the, the, the only answer that really matters is that you would have your hamburger stand right next to a really hungry crowd. Then you're sold out. You know, because people are hungry. That that dude with the hot dog stand outside of the bar is at, you know, 2 a.m. <laughs> Smart man. You know, he, you're drunk, you're cold. You're, oh, this is the greatest idea I've ever had in my life. So, uh, you know, it's it's um, thinking about partnerships. So in this case, the hot dog stand is, aha, the bar, there's a kind of partnership here. Um, the bar is probably glad because they're not serving food anymore. And this person, you know, they probably stick around longer because they get to eat or... Um, there's a lot of complementary things that we can be doing if we start to think outside of just, um, there's just so much uh, of this cold approach to marketing, meaning I do it all on my own. I approach people as strangers. They don't know me versus being willing to have a niche, be a part of a scene, become known over time or figure out who are some of the key people in those scenes. And those people introduce you. It just works a lot better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, the niching spiral, um, which you started in mm. 2014. I mean, I, I'm, I'm personally very familiar with the importance of niching. Yeah. How do people go about finding the, you know, the niche for them, though? Right. Well, how would you define niche? <laughs> uh, an, an area of a, um, a market, um, I guess, in, in simple mm-hmm. terms. Yeah, that's, that's a good definition. <laughs> well, it's, I, the reason I ask is because the way that I think, in at least the scene that I'm in, the way that people talk about niche is uh, synonymous with just who, as in target market. But I think the way you uh, rendered it is much more accurate. 
Thank you. A niche is a, um, you know, it's, um, it's like a niche in an ecosystem. It's more uh, something that you're located inside of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so even, you know, there's certain niches of like critters that go up to like five feet above the ground. Then there's this niche here, even just, you know, that way, or um, the niche of the predator and the prey. These are different, you know, niches in an ecosystem. And so the way I, you know, the verb or the word niche comes from the French verb niche, which means to make a nest. And the, my, the way I talk about niching is that your niche is your role in the community. Or to say it for marketing, your niche is um, the role that you want to be known for in the marketplace. That's kind of the position you want to occupy. That when people think about that thing, they think about you. Or when they think about you, they think about that thing. Um, so that's sort of my understanding of what niching is. And I feel like the way we conceive of it uh, is so important. Because if people walk in thinking, oh, niche is just target market, that doesn't work all the time. You know? Mm-hmm. There's certain restaurants, I'm sure, in Edinburgh that probably have dozens of target markets. They do a very particular thing, you know. Um, there's a, in Edmonton. There's a place called Nourish, and it's it's a you know, superfood vegan elixir bar, one of these kind of places. And but it, it's it it is a particular thing. But there's the yoga crowd. There's the holistic practitioners. There's just older folks who want to eat healthier. There's a vegetarian and vegan crowd. There's you know people who just want to try a different kind of cuisine. There's so many different um, types of target markets. It's not like it's just one group of people with one problem wanting one result. Mm-hmm. And that is another way to niche. You could say actually my niche is going to be based on that. I only work with this group of people with this problem with this wanting this result. That's it. And I have multiple offers to those people, but that's the group I I focus on. So I would just say fundamentally there's a kind of an art, artist, artistic and entrepreneurial approach to niching. You know, the, the artistic approach is I just have these things that I make and I can't help myself but do these things. I just so, uh, there's that. So it's like Van Gogh makes this amazing art. It's such a particular style though. And you either love it or you don't. And so he's not sitting at home thinking like, uh, for this one particular group, what can I make? He just can't help himself but do this. So this is most of my clients come to me just, you know, whether it's the healing arts or coaching or, or the permaculture, they just can't help themselves but do that particular thing. So then the next question has to be, if you figured out what you want to do and kind of how you want to do it, well, then who would be interested? Is that necessary next step? But for other people, it's the reverse. The entrepreneurial approach is, you know, a lot of us has friends like this who are the serial entrepreneurs who just are always noticing unmet needs it's like, oh man, you know, someone can make a fortune doing this. Oh, if somebody, oh God, this, this is going to be a killing to meet me. You know, and uh, drive themselves and everyone else crazy because they just, they see it. They see that, oh, this could be done better. You know, and so the, what they're saying is there's this group of people with a particular problem. You know, it's like a, when my iPhone, you know, luckily my battery, but I had the iPhone 5 and the battery just died so fast on it. And then I heard about these, uh, the Mofi, this company that makes these juice packs. They're like, you know, battery packs for the phone. And, but so that's an example of an entrepreneurial thing. It's like, ah, oh, my phone keeps dying so fast. And I'm out at the bar and it's midnight and I'm, I'm that guy. I plug it in behind the counter. Thank you. Some, you know, and they're, and you get tired of doing that. And so then they thought, oh, maybe we could do something. You know, there's external batteries, you know, or there's the packs that you can put on. Mm-hmm. That's an entrepreneurial approach. And uh, those packs are specifically for iPhones. 
you know, they're made just for that kind of phone. So it's an explicit who, or there's a company 12 South that makes um, these really gorgeous laptop cases and, and different things, but just for Macs. So it's a particular group wanting a particular result or having a particular problem versus the artist who's making something. But you know, so the, 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 the entrepreneur starts with who they think, okay, who's the group? What's the problem? What's the result? The afterthought then is what do I make? And that's where the creative side needs to come in. Um, but what am I going to make that's, that's different or how am I, how am I going to do it with a good aesthetic or, um, that works. And then you know, the artist starts with the what, and then they go to the who, if they're lucky, you know, and they start thinking, okay, well, what groups people who are into this might also be into this. And then you start making some guesses. So there's fundamentally these two different approaches and there's just always going to be a tension between them. You know, I don't know. I don't have any particular advice about how to resolve it, but it's, and of course you need both, but I'm, I, uh, I just know, yeah, it does take the two. And if people only do the artistic thing, they struggle. But, you know, because part of the challenge is the artist always wants to create something new. Once the artist, you know, they've made a fringe show, it's five stars. And the next year they want to do some new thing. And all the entrepreneurial friends are like, no, no, you should just do that show again. In fact, you should tour that show. In fact, you should franchise and get other people to do the show and then you can make some money on it. That's the entrepreneurial mind at work. And they're like, ah, you do it. You know, I want to do this thing. It's like, no, but it was so good. It's so that shtick you've got. It's really successful. You know, there's, I, I'm sure it's at the Edinburgh Fringe, but the, the one man Star Wars is a, is a <laughs> show. One person does all the Star Wars films, you know, in an hour and very successful. And I know he tours around. I think he's franchised it too. And there, there, there can be a soul crushing nature to this of, cause it's so commercialized. Uh, and you're not getting to create anything new. So there's that. That's the proclivity of the artist. But the proclivity of the entrepreneur is that systematize and just, you know, work it and franchise it. But there's not there's not a lot of heart. So mm-hmm. it ends up, I think, being back and forth for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What has been your own approach to marketing yourself? Haphazard. <laughs> Am I allowed a one-word answer? <laughs> uh, I, you know... Um, First of all, I don't particularly think I'm marketing myself. Okay. Um, just as a, as, a, as a person. And I think, in fact, that's probably one of the reasons marketing feels so uncomfortable for people. Is there's a sense of I'm marketing myself. Now I'm the product. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, it's, while it's certainly true that one of the reasons we'll work with somebody versus somebody else is we like them or there's something about their personality. Um, it's a hellish experience if you go to a networking event and you get asked to basically sell yourself. You know, I mean, there are people who feel totally uh, at ease doing that. Sociopaths, um, but <laughs> it's um, but it's it's also hellish to experience. It's a it's it's a bad time for everybody to be sitting there while everyone's. You get that they're trying to sell them to you. So my understanding of it is, there's sort of three things in marketing that have to be established. There's relevance, there's credibility, and then there's value. Um, so the relevance is kind of the niche question of just, you know, cause people go to your website, there's about three seconds of, is this relevant or not? Mm-hmm. And if it's not, they're gone. So that in the headline and the images and the very first thing they've got to understand, yeah, is this relevant? Second thing is credibility. Just do I trust you? 
part of that is, do I trust you as a person? Are you a good person? That kind of thing. But there's also credibility. Do I trust that you could get me the result that uh, you're promising or could you could solve the problem or that this art I see you making that you could make more of it or all this? There's a, there's a kind of trust that happens. And then there's a value. And value is just a return on investment. I pay this much, I get this much in return. Is the value I get greater than the cost that I paid? If so, wonderful. So this is where uh, crafting offers and you know, all, copywriting, all this comes into it. But none of that is about selling yourself. You know, um, it's about having a clear niche. Uh, it's about you know, and in the credibility, so much of the credibility comes. I wrote a book called Point of View Marketing that delves into this, but it's 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 not really selling yourself. It's not even that you're making a. a uh, it's just that you're sharing and making your case for a particular perspective. I think at the end of the day, this credibility piece, you're saying, look, you've got this issue. There's a lot of ways to address this issue. Uh, if I were you, this is the way I would go. So, you know, for example, let's say you want to get healthy and you see a nutritionist. Well, there's vegan and macrobiotic and raw vegan and, uh, you know, um, yeah, Ayurvedic and the zone and the... Yeah, you get the idea. There's so many different approaches or philosophies to, to food and to diet. So um, fundamentally, I think the first thing that we need to make the case for is like, look, whether or not you hire me, here's the approach I'm suggesting. And if people resonate with that approach, they're then if there's a credibility with that, if they trust the approach, if they trust the point of view, the, the perspective, the philosophy, they're then open to your offers. But, you know, if, if you have relevance... I'm like, yeah, you help the kind of people. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like this, you know. You help uh, people who have migraine headaches. Oh, well, I have migraine headaches, so this is not relevant to me. You know, but do, do I trust your approach? Do I trust you? Do I trust your approach? Well, you seem a little slick. Or uh, that approach seems a little new agey. That doesn't make sense to me. Then no. But if, yeah, I like your approach. That totally makes sense. I've never thought about dehydration being about, um, I don't know, or uh, uh, migraines being about dehydration. I've never thought about that before. Uh, sure, great. And then they're open to the the offer. And if there's good enough value, they're likely to buy. Mm -hmm. But again, this isn't... Um, so for me, I don't feel like I've been selling myself, but I do feel like what I've been doing over the past 11 years with this is articulating a certain point of view, a certain perspective, a certain understanding or uh, of or approach to marketing. And certain people have resonated with that and then you know wanted to to work with me more but that's all i'm doing this is because i feel like the selling yourself is very connected to the charging what you're worth racket mm -hmm. you know because now it's about me and i take it personally so if you say no it's about me personally um i didn't do a good job enough of selling myself or maybe i did but i'm just not that worthwhile so you know there's a decade of self-esteem work down the drain you know so yeah. <laughs> you have a, a very unique way to charging for your mm. uh, workshops. Um, it's, you, you describe it as pay what you can. Um, where did this idea come from? The, uh, well, you know, it had its roots in as a kid, I used to watch a lot of street performers. Uh, and that was, that's the whole model of street performing is, is they show up at a festival or sometimes just on the street, but they get a crowd, do a show, and then you, so then they get the money. So they do the whole show and you pay after the show and there's literally nothing in the world keeping you there. 
to stay till the end and nothing that's going to make you pay. You could just stand in the back, walk away, nobody would even know. So, so they have to be so good that you want to pay them. They have to be so good that you, you know, you would actually just wait and wade through the crowd to put your 10 bucks in their hat. And uh, that always moved me as a kid. I just was so inspired by it. And I was like, what a great model. You just show up and people they throw down your hat, do a show, people pay. And of course, it's harder than that, harder than it looks. But so there was that. But then I went to Fairfield, Iowa, and I was doing a workshop, a weekend workshop. But it was just, just this rolling disaster of my computer had crashed uh, at a desktop at the time a month before I left. And then I was on the road for a month. I had no computer, so I wasn't able to promote it. And I'd been there the year before, and I kind of just hoped the word of mouth would fill up, but nobody had signed up for my weekend workshop. By the time I got there, and I had uh, one or two intro workshops, and one of them I had 16 people, and I said, look, I have this weekend work. I was thinking I was charging $1,500, $2,000 or something for it with a bunch of follow-up included. I said, look, I'm going to take away the follow-up. Just come. Pay me whatever you want to pay at the end. And then I had 12 people come to the weekend, I just thought, man, that was easy. That was a lot easier than me doing a whole pitch about here's the price of the program, here's why it's worth it, and making the case. And So my pitch fundamentally became, at the end of my intro workshops, just, uh, so if you like this, there's more at the weekend. That was the, you know, pay, pay whatever you want at the end. So my business model became doing free intro workshops to these paid uh, weekend workshops. I just, it was easier. You know, there, there's a, Part of it, there's there's altruistic and then there's selfish reasons. You know, the the the, the altruistic reasons are, um, I've been to these workshops where I paid a lot of money and um, the, the rhetoric is so capitalist and they're so expensive that most of my friends who are doing good things would never hear about them or know to go or would have to go in debt to go. And some of the people who are doing some of the best work in the world that inherently has smaller profit margins it just didn't seem right that they they uh, don't know about these things or can't afford it. So this is a way of, like street performing, brings art that is normally just the the province of the elite. And at these theaters, you have to pay or corporate events, bringing it to the street to the people so everyone gets to enjoy it. And there's a, there's an immense democracy in that. And uh, so there's that. The selfish reasons are it's just so much easier for me. I don't have to hustle so hard. I just you know the word spreads better. I think because it's easier for somebody to say. Come to this workshop, it's paid you can, then come to this workshop, it's $2,000. So uh, the amount of time and, and effort that I save and the goodwill that gets engendered, which creates more word of mouth, uh, for me it makes sense. And, you know, I do the, the weekend workshops, pay you can, but it's $300 an hour for coaching if it's just, you know, one shot. And then it's a flat rate for the products and flat rate for online programs. So... Uh, and I know other people who do uh, the pay what you can on their online products or pay what you can online programs or there's a lot of different models. But it just feels really good for me because I feel like also puts the burden on me to do a good workshop. And mm. if it's not good, I get paid less. And that's, you know, that's proper. That's as it should be. <laughs> I, I just think, I find it quite fascinating because I, I don't know, how do you detach yourself from the expectation? So to give a, a, an example, if 10 people show up, yeah. there's a £15 deposit, so you're £150. Yeah. Yeah. If you expect that the value of the workshop is £120, right. um, and you know, ergo you should get, say, £1,200 at the end of it, how are you not disappointed when you get 200 <laughs> Because I don't think 
the value of the workshops 120 pounds oh, i mean i get what you're saying because um yeah, when people sign up, there's three options to pay. One is they can do a sort of a full payment of 120 pounds, and others a three pay of uh, 40. 40. And then yeah. the other one's the deposit plus the pay which you can. Almost everyone does the deposit and the pay which you can. I, I've had a few people do the full pay or the three pay. But so, um, yeah, you know, if I'm charging 120 pounds, I'm not saying, well, that's what it's worth. But I'm not really. Um, I'm just saying that's the amount, if I were going to charge a flat rate, that's the amount that would feel good to me. But it's not that I, I think it's worth it. Because how do I know what it's worth for you? I mean, you may already know all the content and leave being like, I didn't learn anything. So then what was it worth to you? Not that much. But it might be your first thing in marketing. Or it might be that you've gone through all this slick, gross marketing stuff and this is the thing that liberates you and it's worth 10 times more than that for you. Or, yeah. you know, and... So, you know, there's that. And then there's just people's financial realities. So for somebody, 120 pounds is just nothing. They don't even notice it. And for another person, that would be, um, they couldn't pay rent hmm. and come to my workshop. So, I mean, how do we even equate these things? So to me, price is, I mean, I, yes, at a certain level it is saying, I think it's worth this. But and another level, it's just, it's a decision you make of, um, what can I charge that would feel good to me? Uh, I don't know. Maybe that is connected to, to our, our sense of what it's worth, but, um, I don't, I don't have any sense particularly that the workshop is worth a certain amount. Now, the truth is if nobody paid, if everyone just paid the deposit and nobody paid anything on top of it, I would have to stop doing the workshops cause I couldn't afford it. Um, or if for whatever reason, everyone starts doing page, it kind of gets, um, old or something and then people are just giving me like 10 pounds each at the end i would have to stop doing it too you know if i just heard this oh that's how it is now i probably wouldn't because it's not sustaining me but this is always the the question in marketing these two questions of how do you create a business that's both safe and sustainable safe for them to approach you but also sustainable for you so you don't burn out um and so pay what you can for me has done both it makes it safer for people to approach and check it out but it has also been sustainable for me. So so I, I, I keep doing it. And the moment it becomes clear it's not safe for people anymore or it's not sustainable for me, I would have to find some other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're a very unique guy, Tad. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't often get the opportunity to speak about the things that you mm. talk about that much. Mm. It's, it's genuinely extremely interesting. Um, what were some of the experiences or, or events in your life that have kind of made you who you are? <laughs> Boy, um, I don't know how much I want to get into it in a recorded interview. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, some of these things are very personal, but... Um, Let me speak to it this way. The um, so much of what we imagine is normal is uh, deeply cultural. That the culture we grow up in is um, 
a product of a certain time and place. And one of the uh, thumbprints of the modern culture that we're in, and, you know, I'll say particularly in North America, I, I don't know how it is here, but um, there's a there's a, a deep sense that uh, it's always been like this. It's like this everywhere. It'll always be like this, that people have always lived in, let's say, nuclear families or uh, in all cultures, they're terrified of dying or... Um, Kids were always sent to school, etc. And of course, we know it's not true, but it just it becomes such a normal thing, and it becomes not something we see anymore. We sort of see from from these assumptions about the world. And uh, I am, you know, as much as anybody, a product of this this culture. So that. Uh, you know, is where my, my fascination and interest lies these days because um, this culture is also destroying the planet. Uh, this culture is, I mean, you just need to go on Facebook for half an hour to be critically depressed for the rest of the day. Um, you know, with everything, the oceans, the acidification of the oceans, the global climate change, the, the you know, daily exploits of the tiny-handed, orange-skinned one in the White House, um, you know, the 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 uh, loss of topsoil, the, you know, I mean, I could go on. That's what this culture is doing. And, um, you know, and so we're all uh, affected by that. We're all a product of that. And I think what it's asking of us is to learn the culture that we're in and to learn it as... Um, as a result of as the 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 bloom of something that it didn't come out of nowhere and that it hasn't always been here because it's um because otherwise we get so stymied with well what do we do about it that's like well what's mm-hmm. the it mm-hmm. what is this it that you know we're so convinced we understand and i don't think we do so i mean the the question you ask you know i'm not meaning to be difficult about it but it's it's, I think it, this is the question that um, uh, all of us should be asking, and maybe I would just inflect it this way. The question is, what events you know, maybe have shaped your life? I would submit that most of the events that have shaped our lives happened a long time before we were born. Did not happen in our lifetime. Uh, so for, for me in North, in North America, uh, I would say my life has been more shaped, you know, or, whatever events I could point to in my life, uh, things that have happened, at least equally, my life has been shaped, if not more so, by the Highland clearances that had so many of my ancestors end up in North America or people of Irish descent, the potato famine, or the, you know, this migration um, from Europe to, you know, what's now North America and certainly that's had more consequences, you know, as, as much as any indigenous Native American could point to what's uh, the things that have happened in their life. And I'm sure they have stories. How many of those stories are an outgrowth of that thing that happened when people who look like you and I arrived on those shores um, running from something 
and and never stop running you know so yeah i guess that's what i would say about that okay so i I know that you have origins tracing back to being from i suppose scottish heritage Mm -hmm. i mean do you feel any sort of connection when you come back here yeah you know and in some places more than others and i still haven't been it's a hard grave in Mackay mostly so there's I, I still haven't really been to officially the old stomping grounds uh so on my my uh my mother's father's side uh Mackay from Mel Ness up in the Kyle of Tongue so I haven't been there but I would love to go back um but yeah certainly I'm even taking the train in just as I was taking the train looking around I, I could just feel this like uh um certain level of relaxation and home and you know but when I'm in Edinburgh it's I'm in a big city. I'm in the modern world now. When I'm mm-hmm. more in the countryside, that starts to feel more like probably something my ancestors would have lived and understood. This Edinburgh feels, um, you know, I was in Amsterdam and um, and London. You know, it's beautiful cities, and it, I mean, God, it's just the most of the buildings in uh, in this city are probably older than my country of Canada. Yeah. You know, at 150 years old. So there's that. There's there's something staggering about seeing the, the age of these things and um and there's something very familiar about it too of like oh yeah metropolis i understand this i've lived in this most of my life some it started here i mean you've been metropolizing much longer than we have in north america so uh yeah so i would say some places more than others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect on some level this question has been inspired by uh, jacques fresco and the venus project but if we were to set up life again on another mm-hmm. planet and you were leading it what would it look like how would that planet operate what would it look like i hate that question so much seriously yeah um yeah because you know it there's so many uh, presumptions i mean first of all i'd be i wouldn't be getting on that ship to another planet i don't th- i mean i guess maybe if that was the only option <laughs> But just the fact that we're even considering it says something about the priorities, you know, of um, why aren't we fighting like hell for this one? Hmm. Why are we allowing this planet to be destroyed? Why are we even starting to make a plan B? Um, What if we were to take all of that effort and put it into, you know? It also has certain assumptions, uh, I think, about um, time in it, that time is this linear progression and uh from past to the future and within that there's a certain assumption that with that moves there's a kind of evolution of a caveman to captain kirk you know we start out with the clubs and the the mastodons and we end up uh traveling the space you know the space traveling space you know in in starships getting warp drive promising not to interfere with other planets but we do anyways and that that's normal and that that's how what's supposed to happen with humans is we're supposed to travel around the the universe and you know colonize uh, every place that we find and terraform it and turn it into something else. And uh, I just so deeply disagree with that characterization of humanity because that's what justifies everything that we're doing. It's like, well, yeah, it's bad, but that's our destiny: is to colonize, is to go into travel the stars. But as, as near as I can figure, this is home. I mean, they have enough trouble 
uh, with astronauts keeping them healthy in space for six months. They step there for a year and a half. They get health challenges that don't go away. There's a magnetic field on Earth that is perfectly tuned to our bodies. It has to be replicated when they make these, you know. So there's something we're built, uh, not built, what a terrible way to say it. We we grew out of this planet. We're just as indigenous as all the, you know, the waves and the wind and the flowers and the tree. You know, we're so much a part of this. So the notion that we could extract ourselves from here and just put ourselves somewhere else. I just don't know if that would actually work. I mean, just in, in every sense of that. Um, and it, it's also the, this idea of home. You know, um, I don't know. This planet feels like uh, our home. So I could be wrong. Maybe the future will prove me wrong. But um, I would rather take all the wind that's in me and and uh, spend it on... Uh, working for this planet uh, being sustained rather than um, mm-hmm. how do we how do we escape if we need to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what do you feel is your your purpose in life um, I don't know I mean there's sort of glib answers I could give one of my colleagues Mark Silver talks about you know the Sufi understanding is it's the same for everybody that, you know, it's just to open our hearts wider and wider. I think it's beautiful. I don't know if I um, resonate with that. I also don't know if I under, if um, maybe part of where I would uh, meddle with the question a bit is that there's one purpose that people have and that's it. Um, that maybe there's, there's multiple you know, purposes. And that um, it strikes me as a funny thing that there's so many conversations about our purpose, but do we understand the purpose of humans, period, on the planet? Do we understand the role that humans are supposed to play? Which is, it's it seems to me, one of the primary questions that indigenous cultures have contended with, including our own ancestors, you know. Um, this question of, why are humans even here in the first place? And any answer I can give has to be nested inside of that. It can't be this, you know, isolated answer of, you know, the, the shit I hear of, you know, my purpose is to impact 10,000 people, you know, around this issue or, I mean, maybe, and, and, and God bless them if it helps them, helps some people. But uh, it feels like, there's got to be a deeper contention with, yeah, what's the role of humans? And I, and I think part of the reason I bring that up is because I feel like it's in modern Western culture so utterly uncontended with. But then we just want to jump to, but what about me? And then there's this culture of individualism and me. And, and what's my purpose and what's my special role in this world? Uh, and the, the much bigger questions haven't even been uh, looked at or... Uh, are are willfully ignored because I'm special and I'm different and I want to have my unique thing. So, um, I still feel like I'm I'm uh, sitting with that first question of why are humans still here? Hmm. If I make any progress on that, um, then that next question starts to starts to make more sense. But also, you know, I don't know if we get to know that. 
in our lifetime. I don't know if that's for us to figure out. Mm. It's probably, um, because another way to ask that question, but you kind of, what's, what is the, the, almost like the meaning of your life or what's the, but the, the meaning of our lives is primarily not in our hands. It's primarily in the hands of other people, you know, just, um, that's the reality of it. What does your life mean? Well, it's not up to you, especially once you die. The meaning of your life is entirely in everybody else's hands. Um, so I, I just don't know if it's really up to me to even determine. I mean, I can tell you what my interests are. I can tell you what I'm doing with my life, the things I'm drawn to, or the things I think I'm good at. Um, but it could be that the purpose of our life is to be a warning for other people. You know, that, that wouldn't be bad, you know. Um, but some people, they live their lives in such a way that the the primary um, remnant of it, you know, is going to be uh, don't live your life that way. So that, that may end up being the purpose of somebody's life is to serve as that kind of a warning. And, um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure most of our lives are a bit of both. But, uh, so yeah, that's a long way of saying I don't know. And I don't know if it's my business to know. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> what um, this is, I suppose, along the same lines. <laughs> um, what would you like your legacy to be? Hmm. Well, so if you look at the word legacy, um, the the etymology of it has to do. It, you, you can see the same roots as legal in there. Yeah, and uh, there's a, a word. I don't know if it's legate or legate, but it would be an envoy from the Pope, uh, an official. Pope business, and the um, so the word has these roots in somebody being an, an envoy, a messenger, being entrusted with some sort of mission from from somebody else. So the the um, and part of the, the there's a connection around contracts or agreements like this. I suspect, though I haven't really dug into it yet, that the leg. In legacy is probably connected with L-I-G because the letters E and I tend to get uh, swapped often mm. in uh, Indo-European things. And there you get words like obligation, you know, uh, or align, which has an L-I-G or a ligament, you know. So it, it's a way of understanding something that is, is tethering you or binding you to something or somebody else. That's bringing things into a temporary alignment that normally wouldn't have been in an alignment. Um, but so when I think about legacy and, and where that word comes from, this question of what would you like it to be, that question subverts the nature of it. <laughs> that you don't determine what it is. If a legacy is 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 a has its origins in we're entrusting you with some sort of a job or a task or a mission. You don't, if you're the, the legate or legate or whatever, you don't go to the Pope and say, hey, Pope, here's what I'd like my mission to be. Probably the Pope probably tells you, you know, uh, you know, with all the issues of the church that there might be, that the Pope might say, uh, I see who you are and I see your gifts in a certain area and there's uh, some need in the world and I think you would be the best for this. You know, and that's, that's maybe a, a very modern day or a modern Western version of the function of an elder, that the elders in a community 
would, um, part of their job would be to know you and to know your heart better than you know it. Because they've been through so much and they're, they're watching you your whole life. And they see what you're drawn to. They see what you're good at. You know, and the storytellers, as they're telling the stories in their village, they would see what parts of the story you like. Oh, yeah. Whenever I talk about hunting, this one lights up. Whenever I talk about making beautiful things, this one lights So it's not pushing you in a, in a direction you wouldn't want to go necessarily. But it's uh, that they would give you jobs that would um, help further your own growth and expansion. Uh, into becoming a, a useful human being in the village. And of course, you probably have ideas and you think they're stupid and why are they giving you this job and what a ridiculous thing anyways. And who would want that kind of a, a, a mission from them? But they're, you know, often wily. There's often other things that they're, they're doing uh, when they're asking you to do this. They're, they're, they, uh, there are certain things that maybe you're being set up for defeat and they know you're going to be defeated. But the point of it is that you do get defeated. So that you kind of learn some humility. You know, you, we hear all these stories about, you know, Mr. Miyagi, the karate kid and all this. So it's, um, so again, with the legacy, I don't think it's our business. Um, but we live in a culture of such, um, it's such an atomized culture where we've been reduced to individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had a village life, which I mean, in Scotland, existed until very recently clan life you had that that gets fractured down to the nuclear family even then that has you know begun to utterly fall apart now mostly single parent families and then the life of the individual and then that's moved to the inner life of the individuals now our life is just about as big as a yoga mat and it's um or meditation cushion and it's all this inner life of which we are supposed to be sovereign and totally in control and that that is, um, so, and, you know, now we're in this world of archetypes and inner. And I think one way to understand it could be that when the architecture of village life falls apart, what you're left with is archetypes. That's the remnant of it. And that's what we need to start rebuilding. A part of that architecture that needs to be rebuilt is the function of elders in community. Uh, not as... Uh, I'm not saying as authoritarian, but uh, as um, a fundamental source of protection and nourishment and and guidance. But we live in a, the, the modern culture will not stand the presence of elders. You know, I mean, a we put them in homes because hmm. we can't be you know bothered to take care of them, um, or change our life enough to. To have them, but you know, it's it's a there's that, but there's also when folks with some wisdom start to speak up. There's you know cries of ageism and who are you to tell me? And I'm sovereign over my own life, and that sovereignty is it's a it's the freedom of the modern world, and it looks like freedom, but it feels like loneliness. It's a kind of everybody on their own, everybody having to figure out the cosmology of the universe on their own, instead of uh, it being inherited. You know, I just read this book called uh, On Trails, not On Trails, but (laughs) Paths. And uh, it talks about uh, how, um, you know, most of the roads, and I'd say certainly, I bet you you'd find it true in Edinburgh, most of the roads were originally just walking trails. 
And most of those walking trails were created by animals first. So, you know, animals walk them because they know how to get from, like, where's the food to where's the water and all this. And then humans start using them too. And uh, humans make some of their own. Those get turned into roads, etc. But um, part of the function of a trail is that it's, it's a, a sort of externalized memory. So you don't have to remember, oh, how do I get there again? Which way was it? You just follow this trail. And that the trail was left behind by the footprints of the ones who came before you. Um, and the more you use a trail, the more sort of trailish it becomes, the deeper it goes uh, into the ground. And uh, so, you know, ceremonies are like this. Uh, ceremonies are a kind of orchestrated memory that get passed on. You know, and it's, it's not lost. I mean, in the etymology of the word trail, you've got this T-R-A at the beginning, which in Indo-European, the, the letter T at the beginning speaks to like a journey of light sort of a, above, beyond, sort of this sort of thing. And, and then the, the R is a, it's kind of this uh, river, like movement, river or ritual or rhythm. And uh, so tr- the word tradition is like this, the TRA plus, I think it's like trahiri or some ver- verb that basically means uh, to pass on. So tradition is this passing something on to the generations to come after you uh, that you won't even see. And part of that is are the customs, the stories. So, you know, in, in Highland culture, you've got all these songs, um, the, the folk tales, the, the big stories, you know, the Finian cycles, the... Um, and uh, in, you know, tunes on instruments and the step dancing and the country folk dancing. and the, You've got all this that you got to be held in in some community. And, and in Highland culture, it's certainly true, you know, that people, I think, would have identified primarily as being a part of a clan and then an individual. Mm-hmm. But um, you start with that and you, you um, such a source of pride to be a part of the clan that you're, I mean, depending on you know, which clan at which time, but such a source of pride to be a part of those people and to be held in the, in the, in the, the woven basket of, of, uh, that was made by everyone who went before you. So, um, yeah, so I, I guess I'm just sort of bemoaning out loud the, um, <laughs> the individualism yeah. that we live with that gives rise to questions like, what's your purpose? What do you, what do you want your legacy to be? Because, you know, there are certain tribes like the Dagara people in Africa that when you're born, or there, I mean, there's tribes in, in Native Americans where when women are of age and being initiated, their wombs are being sung into by older women, praying for ones to come, you know. And uh, the Dagara people in Africa, when a woman is pregnant at a certain time, the medicine man would come down and he started to interview the baby in the womb through the, and that would be answered through the mother's voice. But just, who are you? Why are you come? What are you bringing for us? What are your gifts? You know, and then they'd be paying attention to your whole life. So this question of like, what's your purpose? You, it would just be uh, unheard of for you to have to figure that out on your own. Mm-hmm. It just, you'd be informed. You'd just be guided along it. It wouldn't be a, and so here's your purpose. You know, maybe there'd be a naming moment where they give you a name that really speaks to that. But that would be not uh, crafting it. It wouldn't be, what do you think your purpose is? You know, you figure it out out of nothing. It would be, uh, we see you. We see the gifts that you have. And so we're giving you this name as an acknowledgement of what we see. Uh, you know, so naming had such a profound um, consequence. But so the tragedy of our time, it's not that, um, 
we don't know what our purpose is. So that's tragic. The tragedy is that we're left to figure it out on our own. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. What an incredible answer. <laughs> I'm just thinking how how might one facilitate that in the modern technological age? Because I can see how that can be applied and how it works. Well, in I mean, a tribal culture. Yeah, and I would just say uh, that question probably be better if you take the word "how" off the beginning. <laughs> Do we do that yeah. in a modern technological age? Yeah, that's a question yeah. worth considering. Yeah. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Not to answer questions about what the best piece of advice. I've ever <laughs> I don't know. Well, um, you know, and I suppose that the intention of the question is is. Um, Maybe there'd be something that I learned in my life that might be useful for some of the people watching. And so, um, but I would just say this, uh, the only thing I can speak from is my own life in my corner of the world. And that's it. So I, 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 um, I genuinely don't know if I would want to put anything out with the assumption that it has some uh, generic utilitarian transplantable use from from my life to somebody else's life. You know, for example, I'm a white man living in North America. What might be useful or true for me may not be true for uh, a queer woman of color living just where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and this assumption that there's something I could say that's so helpful and universally true that could be applied anywhere is 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 part of the trouble of these times you know um this is at the heart of a lot of conversion we've got this thing and it's the truth and it's it's useful and you should do it and you know and um so i feel like maybe i might have some things to say to uh people who are like me in certain ways or have certain lived experience and, and certainly in the context i'm in but, you know, and just with all courtesy, I don't, my ancestors come from here, but I'm, I'm, uh, it's been a few generations back and I'm so new here. So it would be just, um, I don't know, Im- improper of me to even suggest that I've got some advice that might just be generically useful here in some place that I don't, uh, really know yet or understand. So with all courtesy, I just can't, it's a, it's probably not proper for me to answer that question. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's very telling of a person, the way in which the, the question lands. Mm. And with you, it, the, you really kind of analyze the question and the true meaning and the essence within the question in such a deep level, which I think is a really quite incredible thing. <laughs> Thank you. You know, and maybe if I could just word that a little differently... I don't know if it's essence or the true meaning, but what I'm trying to be attuned to is what does the question do? You know, what's the, what are the consequences of asking that question and trying to wonder where do these, what, um, what begat that question? Where does the question come from even? Yeah. You know, it's like I was saying earlier in the, when you're saying what are the life influences and most of them happened most of the things i think that would lift up some of these questions um 
in, the, in, in particular phrasings of them, it's, it's so deeply cultural. And so this is something I'm wondering about a lot is, yeah, how did it get to be this way? How did we end up where we are um, with all these things that seem like such a good idea that are happening at the cost of so many? Um, yeah. <laughs> this question is uh, not dissimilar, but relates very specifically to yourself. Um, if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, oh, what, what would you say? Okay. <laughs> um, I think about this a lot. It's a, yeah, it's a very, it's a good question to wonder about, I think, for most of us. And it's something I do talk about in the work. You know, I'll often ask people a similar thing. If you could go back and only say two words to your, yeah, 20-year-old self, what would you say? Most people have a pretty clear answer. The, the beauty of this is that, you know, when I work with people around their niche, it can take a long time to figure out your niche. But one of the, it's not always true, but often true. You, the, your deepest wounds are often a doorway to your truest niche. You know, the, the places you've struggled the most and had to overcome are often a place that you've got something to say from some actual place of experience, some actual credibility, some, you know, let's say you, um, you went through childhood abuse and you, you recover from it and you've built a beautiful life and you've really overcome the trauma and healed it. And there's been healing even with you and the people who hurt you and all this. Um, and then you've got to, and then you meet somebody or, Somebody meets you, but they've got a choice of do I work with you? Who've actually you've experienced this, you've gone through it, or this person who did their PhD on it, but has never gone through it. You know, who do you choose? And even though this person has a PhD and they've researched and they've interviewed all these people, I think most people would choose the person who's actually been through it. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, you've you didn't just read National Geographic magazines, you went to the country and you lived there and you were a part of those people, and you you're you're not a tourist in this place, you're you're indigenous to this experience, you're 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 native to that place. So it's um yeah it's a beautiful question because it's it's um yeah our wounds I think often I don't know the architecture of I don't know if there's a meaning I don't know if they happen do we choose this all before we're born that's just way above my pay grade hmm. and it does seem to be true that um you know it's funny I was just um a friend of mine is struggling right now and just before you picked me up, I was writing him because he's in a psych ward right now and just having a really hard time and um, dealing with a lot of the, I'm a monster, I'm the worst person, I'm, you know, all the shame. And I was just trying to lift up to him. It's like, you know, you're not the worst person, first of all. But just all these stories of people, um, former, you know, racists, for example, who now are trying to get people out of the, skinhead game and um <clears throat> and the immense regret or remorse they have for what they they did and not that you know we would want to say we're glad that they went through it and yet there's something redemptive about what they're doing with what they experienced mm. so whether it's ways we've been hurt or whether we ways we've hurt others there's um there's such a beauty when that gets redeemed when that gets taken and, you know, there's the etymology of the word mess. My friend Day pointed out where he said, um, he has this great website, uh, morningalters.com. And he takes, um, just things from nature and he makes these beautiful, not mandalas, but kind of 
symmetrical designs, and they're just some of the most incredible things. And he um, was making it one day, and he had this discard pile where all the stuff he wasn't using, and it just kind of piling. It looks like ah, it's such a mess. But then he realized, like, oh, all of my supplies for tomorrow's they come from this pile, from this mess. And he got curious about the etymology. He looked it up, and it it's um it relates to food. And uh, so like a mess hall, mess kit in the army. I think it probably comes from this root, uh, missus, which was like a, a soupy, watery broth. So if you ate it, probably very messy, but it's also food for you. Hmm. And so that the messes in our life, uh, if, if approached properly, actually end up feeding us and can feed the community. So anyways, all that to say, I, I love the question. And um, so, if, yeah, for myself, I mean, God, I don't know how interesting my personal life is, but if I were to, um, I mean, part of it is the, I don't know if saying something would actually do it, would have changed anything. Because I'm sure other people probably said the same things to me and, you know, I just don't listen because I'm 21 and I know everything. And um, like you're supposed to, you know, when you're 21. <laughs> but um I um what I, here's what I'm aware of is that at 21 years old I was deeply in need of the presence of a grounded older men and they were not there um not in my daily life there were some extraordinary men that I did meet that I knew but just didn't always live with them or have time or maybe frankly wasn't open to it uh or or available for that but that was absolutely needed in my life and i think the life of a lot of young men uh, who are growing up who just don't have that for all the reasons so um if there's an absence if there's a poverty not something that wasn't said but something that wasn't there uh, that was that was certainly it hmm. Hmm. okay the last question's a big one um i suspect given the trend you may find a way to <laughs> critique the question in and of itself but if you uh, if you can appreciate the sentiment sure, okay. <laughs> and, and answer it in such a way that would be great um, if you had the opportunity to change anything in the world what would it be and why um, the notion that there's such a thing as the world wow that Again, I feel like this is one of these just spells of the West is that everywhere is the same. It's the same everywhere, that there's this one world and that that's what we're supposed to be moving towards is just this, you know, um, there's this fellow Bruce Lipton. I don't know if you know his I work. Do, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he wrote this book, The Biology of Belief, and one of the, the mind blowers, and I mean, I don't know much about science, so perhaps other people disagree with what he's discovered, but... As a cellular, cellular biologist, uh, he realized, it sounds like others realized too, that the, the nucleus wasn't the brain, brain of the cell. It holds the DNA, but it's not in charge that you could remove the, the nucleus and the cell just keeps doing its thing for quite a long time. Uh, versus if you remove the brain of anything else, it's just, it's over. Mm-hmm. And that they discovered that the, the skin of the cell was the brain, or the closest, you know, that uh, that's what seems to dictate what it does and so if you put a cell in a neutral wash it just doesn't do anything it just sits there put food in it moves towards it toxins it moves away from it and that sort of thing and so the 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 fundamental understanding is that the the 
cell is just constantly responding to its environment. And so, of course, his uh, premise in the book is, the biology of belief, is that if you, uh, stressful thoughts, you know, I think the way he talks about limiting beliefs are certain ways of looking at the world cause stress in the body, and that stress creates certain hormones and biological, just physical responses that then, you know, your bloodstream gets flooded with this hormone that your cells then respond to, and thus certain diseases can start to appear. And so that even just by changing your belief, you're literally changing the uh, medium that your, your cells are in. But the thing that's of interest for me in this question is that, so that functionally this is what cells are always doing, just always responding to their environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what life does. And so that the, the, uh, the movement of life is always this, more diversity. I mean, you, you take any ecosystem, leave it alone for 100 years, you come back, and it's just so much more diversity than when you started with it. You know, as long as they had some sustainability, other creatures come in, they start attracting other things, you know, and all of a sudden you've got the, you know, the birds are eating the seeds and then they're, you know, uh, letting them go over here and then now there's another, tra- and more. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the Amazon basin, you just like, you, you hear scientists talk about the obscene level of, not obscene, but um, remarkable level of diversity there. So that's the, the movement of nature. But the movement, you know, when you hear people talk about evolution often, uh, not scientifically, but spiritual evolution, uh, there's this this motion. That this is what we're all moving towards. And you call it heaven, you call it nirvana, you call it the singularity, you call it, you know, whatever you call it, one world government. <laughs> there's this. And the assumption that that's proper, that that's how it should be, that um, we should be just moving towards oneness constantly. Uh, to say it another way, the elimination of diversity. No more diversity in the world. We're all just the same. And um, so the the notion of even one person being asked to you know, make a decision, but how many times have we seen this go wrong? Where, you know, the, the well-meaning Westerners come in and dig the well, but then the people don't know how to maintain the well. It's like, oh, but we did this thing that we thought would be helpful for you. I mean, how many times have good intentions gone completely the wrong way because the locals weren't uh, the ones empowered to make the decisions themselves? How many well-meaning white people go into communities of color full of like, yes, I want to help you. I'll be the white savior. And, and you know, if there's any cry from, from uh, particularly women of color in these times, which are voices I think have to be listened to, is um, that when we're talking about issues that affect them the most, they need to be the ones in positions of leadership around how it gets handled. Why are we coming in and telling them what to do? So, um, so I mean, I suppose that's the thing I would want to change is, is let's not imagine that there is this thing called the world. Hmm. You know, Martin Shaw, a storyteller from Devon, uh, talks about, he's like, I'm not in love with the world. I'm just in love with the place that I'm from. That the world is this abstraction. It's just too big. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can love the place that you live, you know, and, and, and deepen that and allow yourself to be tethered to it and, and work to redeem that place. Like, you know, sometimes people have asked me, like, what should people of color do, around, you know, let's say around cultural appropriation? And I'm just like, I have no idea. It's not my business. 
my business is to talk to, to white men in particular about these issues. That's my job. Um, and maybe to encourage white men to be listening to the voices of women of color and, um, yeah, but this idea of the world, um, yeah, I think if we start to look at where, where did it even come from that we would imagine that there is such a thing as the world, <laughs> one place, you know, this, and I get it, probably astronauts, you start to see it and it is, yeah, it's one planet, but within that, it's just this immense diversity of culture. And, and, um, so yeah, you know, if you go, it's, um, <coughs> it's this last piece that I read a piece, it was called the mystery of the white man. And it was written by a couple of Aboriginal folks from Canada, Cree, I think. And they were talking about one of the differences. They said, when a white, when the white man comes into a place, they get very busy and almost agitated, kind of adjusting everything. Um, you know, they would come in and they just have, have to move everything around until they kind of collapse in exhaustion or until they figured it out. So when, when the, the Indian as their language and writing it, you know, comes in that they get very still and it looks like they're frozen. It looks like maybe they're scared. They get very still, but what's happening is they're just, they're observing. They're paying a lot of attention to what's appropriate here. What's proper here. What's, what should I touch? What don't I touch? What's the, uh, how do I be a good guest in this place? There's a lot of observing. And then slowly they kind of start moving. And, uh, so, that would be my hope, and it, particularly for for white men in this world, given the the uh, the history of, of white men at this particular point in history, uh, at least in my corner of the world. Again, you know, but would be uh, to to conduct oneself as a good guest if you're going to be in some other place, not to mm-hmm. imagine you know or aha, we've got the solution that's going to work for the world. And let's you know, anytime I see these things like these huge concerts or the I don't know. Let's just all meditate or pray in this particular way as if oh, the one size fits all solution that we could just transplant it everywhere. And everyone wears these t-shirts and everyone will do this one thing. Hmm. Um, they don't seem to work. And I don't know if they're particularly respectful of the places they get imported to. So, <laughs> Another incredible answer. Wow. This has been a really uh, fascinating insight into the inner workings of your mind. Right. which I have to say are incredibly interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've genuinely loved speaking with you. I didn't know that we were going to get this, but this is, uh, I'll enjoy watching this back. All right. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, Tad. Thank yeah. you so much for, for your time and for being a, a guest. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and we'll see you at the next episode.